So we continue our fall series of messages on questions that Jesus asked. I'd like to remind you each week that Jesus asked far more questions than he ever answered. Depending on how you parse them in Scripture, uh, the, uh, it's 10 to 1 or more the questions that he asked. And he often answered questions with questions. When he asks the question, unlike the little kids who want to learn information and they're building their worldview and they ask so many questions, they're just little sponges for information, we don't see Jesus asking questions to gain information. But especially as we see today, often his questions are to reveal something in those to whom he asks the question. Now, the question, before we get to it, has a question that precedes it. There's so many questions in the Gospels. And this question and the answers that come with it are found in all the synoptic Gospels. Remember, synoptic Gospels are the ones that have a lot of the same material from different points of view written to different hearers, and that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, the last of the Gospels written, is very different. Rather than focusing on the miracles of Jesus and the short teachings of Jesus, John knew the church had those recorded in Scripture three times, and so he wrote a Gospel that included the longer discourses, sermons, and teachings of Jesus. The Gospel of John is a precious gift to the church, along with the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels have this question. I'll read it first from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8. The preceding question that was asked, and it's interesting, it says that Jesus was traveling with his disciples. He took them out of their busy area of the Galilee, a little further north, up to the area of Caesarea Philippi. If you've been to Israel, that's the area at the foot of Mount Hermon, right on the border of modern-day Syria Israel and Lebanon, that corner, that busy corner, which is under attack with missiles right now. We call it today the Golan Heights. It's the headwaters of the Jordan River. This is where Jesus took his disciples to. We read, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asks them, who do people say I am? I find that fascinating. When Jesus asks this question, it's so different than if you or I ask this question. This sounds, for all the world, very modern. It's like a person who lacks self-confidence, and they want to know what people think of them. And their, their esteem is kind of struggling. They're kind of fragile. They ask that. Or it's a person who kind of is full of themselves, and they say, yeah, what do people think of me? And they're always on Instagram or Snapchat, and they're checking their likes. They want to see their posts retweeted and so forth. It's, it, it seems very modern in that way. In this modern, almost narcissistic culture we live in, probably not almost, people really live their lives based on what other people think of them. And it's all about image, putting forward a good self-image or a good image. Well, that's what we would do. But that's not what Jesus is doing We'll see in just a moment that Jesus is asking this question to lay the foundation for a more important question. And that question gives the name to the message today, what about you? What about you? Who do others say that I am? The different synoptics say the son of man. What do the crowds say? What do the people say? 
But then Jesus will turn it and make it very personal for us. What about you? But as I said, he starts out with a question to lay the foundation for this much more personal question. Jesus asks the first question to ask about popular consensus. That's a very modern term. Jesus is basically taking a poll. How many of you have ever received a phone call from Abacus or one of the polling agencies? And most often you hit, no, you're not going to answer the phone. My wife is wonderful. Depending on how long the poll is, she takes them. She wants her opinion known, but she'll always ask at the beginning, how long is this poll going to be? If it's more than 10, 15 minutes, no, we don't have time for that. But Jesus is asking, what do people think? What's the public perception of who I am? We think of popular consensus, finding out which way the wind blows. That picture there is not pointing at a cloud. That's doing this. Have you ever done that? Find out where the wind's blowing? Which way's the wind blowing? Well, to find out what the wind is blowing, most often we say, well, that's, that's a politician. Politicians, they, 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 they watch and find which way the parade is going, and then they run and get in front of it to pretend like they're leading somehow. We don't like that in politicians. We want people to have convictions. We especially don't like this in our teenagers. They're always looking to see what's popular, which way is the wind blowing, what do people think, what's good, what's in, what's out, and then I try to fit myself to conform to the ways of the world. We say for our kids, that can be disastrous. And we want to teach them independence, to walk not to the world's drumbeat, but walk to a different drummer, especially to set your eyes on Jesus and to follow him. Polling data. Jesus is taking a poll. Now we'll turn our attention to Matthew, the same account, Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, then the next chapter, he, he receives the polling data from his disciples. They hear what's going on. They hear what people talk. Just previous to this, they fed thousands of people. And in those enormous crowds, they would always hear what people were thinking about their teacher, their master, Jesus. So the results, they list up. I don't know if they put them in order from greatest to least, but they list the results in verse 14. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. Now that's interesting. All of the polling data seem to indicate that the consensus was Jesus is a prophet, a spokesman for God. It doesn't go much beyond that. In fact, whether they felt he walked in the footsteps of these other prophets or perhaps were somehow miraculously these prophets come back to life, well, John the Baptist, many of them may have seen John the Baptist in person or seen Jesus and John alone. What are they saying? This is a man who calls for repentance. This is a man with an apocalyptic message like John the Baptist. The kingdom of God is at hand. Make straight the way of the Lord. Prepare ye the way. This is another John the Baptist or Elijah. Well, who was Elijah? Oh, Elijah stood up to the powers that be. Remember Elijah in the days of Ahab? 
Miracles in the Old Testament are not evenly distributed. They come in clusters. And there's a great cluster of miracles, incredible outbreakings of God's power in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, his protege. And they see this same miraculous power in the ministry of Jesus and the same uh, prophetic message about the kingdom of God. So he's, he's another Elijah. What about being another Jeremiah? Well, Jesus was not averse to letting his emotions show. We know that Jesus openly wept over the sin of Jerusalem and the rejection of a God who loved them. We see Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus and the people around who couldn't conceive of God's power in that situation. Jesus was known to shed tears, a man of sorrow, well acquainted with suffering, Isaiah says, or one of the prophets. We just know that you're from God and you're telling us the word of God. That's popular consensus. Well, friends, today we see the power of polls. People hear what's popular and they, for all the world, try to alter their thinking and their behavior to fit the spirit of the age, whatever's popular. The church is no different. Around the world today, we see in many areas, and I'm talking primarily about Western world, Western Christianity, because we know the, the true growth of the church is happening in the developing world rather than in the Western world. In the Western world, we have tried to make accommodation with popular consensus. And we've done that in a number of ways. Speaking today, today is a day of pluralism. I have a little graphic to remind you of pluralism. Pluralism is, doesn't matter if you're Muslim, Orthodox Jew, Buddhist, nothing at all. As long as you are working sincerely at something, all of those roads eventually lead to the same mountaintop. All roads lead to heaven. It's a pluralistic society. Live and let live. You know, we see that in many denominations. It's no surprise that those denominations that embrace a pluralistic outlook on life are the ones who are in decline. For instance, the Anglican Church in Canada admitted a couple years ago that within 20 years, they won't exist anymore. They are in a demographic death spiral. They're small and getting smaller. We see that with the once dominant Protestant church in Canada, the United Church, in a death spiral. Any denomination that embraces pluralism, saying that whether it's a sweat lodge or a, a, you know, a sweetgrass ceremony, anything, it's all good. All roads lead to the same God. Muslim, doesn't matter. Just be sincere. Everyone goes to heaven. That's the kind of pluralism the world sees around us. If you as a Christian take any, any uh, if you dispute pluralism at all, you will be singled out as a bigot, as hateful, as intolerant. Popular consensus embraces pluralism. We are diverse. It's our strength. That's the kind of talk we hear in the world today. 
Very dangerous when it comes to Christianity because you cannot embrace pluralism and be faithful to biblical teaching. You just can't. They're incompatible. Well, something that's close to that is more often, it's kind of pluralism soft, and that's called inclusivism. We're inclusive. We're accepting. These are people that if you pin them down, they still say, yes, Jesus is the only way. Only Jesus saves. But they'll accept anything if you're sincere as Baha'i, if you're sincere as a Druze on Mount Carmel, if you're sincere as a Taoist or a Buddhist, all of those will get you to heaven. Because Jesus will look at that and he'll find a little grain of truth and he'll save you on the basis of that. It's very similar. It all gets there eventually. It's still Jesus saving, but really, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter if you're different than us. We're all pulling on the same end of the rope, making the best of it. Live and let live. Inclusivism. Any element of truth is enough. Well, friend, that's the world we live in. And that's the world Jesus and his disciples lived in. And we see it by the fact that nobody could agree. They all had parts of the truth, but nobody had a clear view of who this Jesus was. But then, with that foundation laid, Jesus asks another question. He asks not about popular consensus, but now Jesus asks about personal conviction. Oh, that's what we want in our leaders. We want people who have a deep moral foundation. They have a grounding. We want that in our pastors. We want that in spiritual leaders, people who are grounded and anchored in the truth of God and live their lives not by which way the wind is blowing, but by personal conviction. You may know people like that. Lord willing, you're a person like that. But you remember as a kid in school or college or at work, that person, that Christian that came in for all of the abuse, <laughs> they tended to live their lives by personal conviction and that rubbed people the wrong way. They went against the flow. They didn't go along always with the crowd. And they suffered because of it. Jesus asks about personal conviction. Having asked the question about what people think, Jesus now turns his attention toward his disciples themselves. In verse 16, or verse 15 rather, Jesus continues, But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now in Greek, you got to understand, Greek, the word order, we have subjects, we have predicates, we have, we have all sorts of things in our grammar that aren't there in Greek. But Greek, you can have strong emphasis when you put a word first in the sentence. In this sentence, in this question, Jesus' first word is you. He's emphasizing you. What do you say? How do you relate to him? Who do you think he is? You can translate this passage, you, yes, you, what do you say? Who do you say I am? This is taking it home. This is as personal as he can get with them. Now, the you in this case is plural. He's not asking Peter. He's asking the whole group. And Peter pops off and says, you're the one. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the son of God. 
And only in Matthew does Jesus go on and say, yes, Peter, upon this, which I believe this, this is the profession of faith, I'm going to build my church on faith like this. It's interesting that in the gospel, the gospel of Mark, which the early church agreed was the gospel that Peter preached and that Mark, as his secretary, wrote down, Peter doesn't include any of that. That wasn't important to him. The important thing was who Jesus was, the Messiah, the promised Savior, the anointed one, the Son of the living God. And this brings us to the biblical approach, even in a world of pluralism, the biblical teaching, the clear teaching of Scripture when it comes to Jesus and people making their way to heaven, all of those roads, it's not pluralism. It's not being inclusive. It's exclusive. Exclusivity. There's only one way, and it's Jesus. Some people go so far as to call it restrictivism. Oh, that's exclusivism and restrictivism. That sounds so that sounds so kind of harsh and unloving and kind of mean to people. Exclusivity. But the Bible clearly teaches that salvation is in Christ alone. Not little kernels or glimpses of truth where there's one part truth and ninety-nine parts falsehood. It's in Christ alone, in Christ. There's so many passages, three of the more familiar ones. John 14, what did Jesus say? This is in response to Thomas's question. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And Tom, Thomas says, where? How would we know the way? Verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Saving faith is only faith in Jesus. If you're saved by grace through faith. What did Peter say when he talked to his co-religionists? Not only other Jews, but the leaders and the Bible teachers of the Jews of Jesus' time. The Sanhedrin who had condemned Jesus and rejected him as the Messiah because he didn't line up with what they thought he should be. Peter boldly tells them, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Very clearly exclusive. Not pluralism, not inclusiveness, exclusive. Christ alone, Christ alone. What about Jesus plus something? Yeah, you know, there's some people, they, they, they worship all the gods, you know. They say, oh, I like Jesus, and I like, I like Muhammad, and oh, I like Buddha, and I like uh, Rambam, and I like all of these different religious teachers. Yep. Are they? They got Jesus. Are they? How about Jesus plus something else? How about Jesus plus religion? <laughs> How about Jesus plus Jewish legalism? That's what the Bible, we see the early church struggled with that. Pharisees who came to Christ say, yeah, I, I want to be a follower of Jesus, but I still, I'm in love with following the rules. I want religious rules to follow. And we see that played out written large in the Catholic church. Yeah, we believe in the biblical Jesus, but give us all of those extra rules and then we'll be saved. Paul says in Galatians, he writes to that very specific setting. 
I'll start a little earlier. Paul writes a little earlier. He says, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Other translations say accursed. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. And he's writing to people who believe in Jesus but just want to add something to it. That's pretty exclusive. That's pretty restrictive. How can we be exclusive? You know, in my dealing with people who don't have faith in Christ, I see this, number one. They, they really choke on this. It really gets in their craw. It's a burr under their saddle. Whatever metaphor you want to use, they really strain at that. How can you say? There's so many religions. How do you say yours is the right one? What do you mean? It's Jesus alone. What do you mean? That, that's just too much. And it sounds, from the world's point of view, kind of mean, kind of mean-spirited, kind of narrow-minded. But it shouldn't. I think the exclusive picture of Christ alone for salvation, we should, we should be very open about it but we should be very humble about it. Let me put it this way. Exclusivity. The world's view of that is quite negative. There are exclusive groups that I would love to be part of. Oh, if they would let me be a member of the Augusta Golf Club where they play the Masters, oh, I could just go play on that, that ground, that beautiful drive down Magnolia Lane. and But you know, you got to be rich and famous. you got to be like Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. They accepted her as a member. For a long time, you couldn't be a person of color. You couldn't be female. You couldn't be this. Well, think about the great big world groups like the Bilderberg Group or the Bohemian Grove or all these movers and shakers, the World Economic Forum. It's a very exclusive group and you are not invited you don't measure up harvard has the skull and bone society so many of our presidents have gone to harvard and been part of this exclusive secret club invitations go to no one that's exclusivity but that's not what we're talking about with jesus is it the place is very narrow christ alone only jesus But the invitation list, it's as broad as it gets. It's everyone. Everyone. The invitations are universal. It goes to everyone. Matthew 11, famous passage. Think of it in that regard. This is the invitation to salvation. Come to me, all. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. These tired, sin-sick souls. Salvation is at hand. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is a broad invitation 
to salvation. Friends, it's the only place of salvation. To really be hard-hearted and uncaring, we would keep it to ourselves. If we find ourselves in Christ, if we didn't tell anyone else, how awful would that be? How awful would that be? Chinese church leader, Watchman Nee, he was an amazing teacher, an author in China. He died in only 1972. He spent the last 20 years of his life in prison because after the Chinese communists came to power in 1949, he was able to continue to lead the Chinese church for about three years. Though he came from a family, he was the son of a Methodist minister. He was strongly influenced by the Plymouth Brethren, along with special Asian cultural grace notes that make his books challenging and wonderful to read at the same time. When he compared being in Christ and leaving people on the outside, what a difference it makes, he wrote this. He said, outside of Christ, I'm only a sinner, but in Christ, I'm saved. Outside of Christ, I'm empty. In Christ, I'm full. Outside of Christ, I'm weak. In Christ, I'm strong. Outside of Christ, I cannot. In Christ, I'm more than able. Outside of Christ, I have been defeated. In Christ, I am already victorious. How meaningful are the words in Christ. Broad the invitation, narrow the place of salvation. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow the path to Jesus. For he alone is the gate. Finally, let's take it from plural to personal. Who do you say I am? Not who do you think I am. Not who do you harbor a notion that I am. Not who that you tuck away in your personal file, I am. But who do you say I am? You notice Jesus made that very explicit. Who do you think I am? No, he said, who do you say I am? Because friends, if we give up the exclusive, profound, Christ-centered teaching on salvation, personal evangelism, international missions goes out the window. If we believe everybody's going to make it to heaven, why bother? Why even disturb them by giving them a choice? Just leave them be. But the Bible always teaches, whether it be in Psalm 116 or Paul quoting Psalm 116 in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I believe, therefore I speak. And Jesus always says that. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Paul says in Romans 10, you shall be saved. Because if you truly believe something, you will express it with your life and with your words. There's a picture of a beautiful building. It's an ancient building. Look at this. This is inside of a building in Rome. It's called the Pantheon. It was originally built about 25 BC, but it burned down. And on the foundations of it, Emperor Hadrian, in about 140 AD, rebuilt it. And it stood the test of time. The incredible dome with an open oculus on top is made entirely of Roman concrete, and it has lasted. Since about the 6th century, it was used as a Catholic church, but now it's been restored to its former glory. And, and it was a temple to all the gods. 
So what that tells me, friends, is that they didn't live in a different time than we do, our age of pluralism and inclusivity that we live in. That was the spirit of the age in the first century where all the gods were honored. And then the little Christians come along and say, no, we got to tell you for your own good. Not to tell you about Jesus would be so unloving, so unkind. We humbly tell you God loves you. God loved the whole world and gave his only son that whosoever, that's anyone who believes in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. That was the message preached in the face of the Roman pantheon. I love to see the Christians speak in the Bible. Invariably, they would often suffer for it. Rejection, loss of jobs, even loss of life. But they spoke. In Acts chapter 2, to wind up the great sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost... I'll begin a little earlier than, the screen, than what's on the screen with Peter's summation. Peter finishes his message. Therefore, let all Israel be assured God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, <laughs> I like that. He spoke. He didn't just cross his arms and say, too bad, too bad, don't want to be you. No, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit because they had just received that gift themselves. They knew God's indwelling spirit was now part of the birthright for the family of God, for Christians. Oh, a little further back, the apostle Paul, unjustly imprisoned, And he and Silas, suffering in prison, their circumstances didn't dictate their attitudes. They sang songs of praise until in the middle of the night in that Philippian jail, an earthquake struck, a miraculous earthquake because it knocked the chains loose from the walls and knocked their bonds loose. And the jailer whose life was now forfeit if his charges escaped, he goes in and he's ready to kill himself to save his family from any further punishment. Paul calls out to him. I'll start a little earlier. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword. He was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted out, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, What must I do to be saved? They replied. They spoke. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke of the word of the Lord of the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. A revival meeting broke out. And they baptized the whole household who'd received Christ. Powerful. None of it would have happened. If God's people hadn't spoken, who do you say I am? Not on Sunday morning in church. Who do you say I am at school? Who do you say I am at work? Who do you say I am when you're with your friends that you've known forever and you know they don't follow Christ? Who do you say I am then? 
When people swear an oath to speak truly in American courts, we've all seen it on television. We know how that ends. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. I think all too often Christians are silent. We're not telling a world who needs to hear with our lives and with our voices the whole truth about Jesus. Great Christian author, so challenging, A.W. Tozer wrote this about Jesus. It is either all of Christ or none of Christ. I believe we need to preach again a whole Christ to the world, a Christ who does not need our apologies, a Christ who will not be divided, a Christ who will either be Lord of all or will not be Lord at all. Christ alone the hope of glory. Who do you say that he is? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to say with the Apostle Paul, we believe, therefore we spoke. Lord, help us to have those opportunities to tell others of your great love, that you came and gave your life. Lord, help us to be open with what we believe. And Lord, stand in the face of the winds of the world, winds of pluralism and inclusivism. Lord, knowing that salvation is exclusively in Jesus, but the invitation is broad as your heart is wide. For you so love the world that you gave your son. Lord, may we shine this light in a dark world. May we offer this hope in a hopeless age. Lord, may we share the truth humbly but boldly. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.